must never let circumstances be a measurement of the power of God because circumstances cannot give you an accurate measurement of the power of God. Only the resurrection of Christ is given to us as the true measurement of the greatness, the magnitude of the power of God. the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So that phrase toward us who believe that is going to direct and shape and define all of the working of the power in the remainder of the passage. All that Paul is going to describe about the working, the immensity, the magnitude of the power, all of that is working toward us who believe. That's a staggering thought to ponder. That the massive power of God that Paul has described or is attempting to describe here is a power that is at work toward us who believe, or in the King James language, usward. Now, what does that mean? Why is it working toward us? What is the ultimate goal? Why is God working this magnitude of power toward us who believe? Paul doesn't say. But is, is the goal that God has in mind here, is it working toward us to produce our successful life or to make us kinder people or to make us more gentle people or to make us more generous people or to make us come to church every Sunday or, as the old cliche goes, to give us our best life now? Why is God working such incredible power toward us now who believe? Paul doesn't say. But the flow of the passage, the context of the passage, tells us that God's goal is the same as we talked about before, which is to secure our eternal, completed salvation. Our ultimate, eternal happiness in God, our joy in the Lord, our eternal joy and satisfaction. That is the goal that God has in this massive working of power toward us who believe. So let's think about that just for for just a moment. God's goal in this magnitude of power, is to make us eternally happy. Now, earlier in the passage, Paul stated three times that God's ultimate goal in all that he's doing here in chapter 1 is his glory. Three times Paul said, for his glory. His glory is the goal. So, how do we reconcile the two of those? That God is working for his glory... But yet the magnitude of his power is working toward, toward the goal of securing our eternal joy and happiness. The two of those things are not at tension with one another. There is no contradiction between God working to secure our eternal happiness and God working to secure his eternal maximum glory. And here's why. When we find our greatest joy and happiness to be in God then we are also bringing to him the greatest possible glory. When we find God to be our source of maximum joy and happiness, when we find maximum satisfaction and joy in him, we are likewise giving to him maximum glory as well. Think of it this way. This past week, 
our brother Gabe. Heard you had a birthday and a big birthday celebration. So let's just embarrass Gabe for just a, ma- a moment. Let's say, for example, in that birthday party, there's this cake and candles. And you blew out the candles and everybody's clapping and cheering around you. And you say, thank you to everybody for being here for my birthday celebration. To which they all respond in chorus, Gabe, we had to be here. Leanne called us and told us we had to come. We're a family. I mean, we just, we kind of had to be here. This was our duty. By saying that, they just robbed all of the honor and glory from Gabe. But instead, what if Gabe had blown out his candles and everybody cheered and clapped and, and Gabe said, thank you so much for being here. And everybody responded together. Gabe, we wouldn't have been anywhere else. You are our family member. We love you. This is where we would have wanted to be because we take pleasure in being with you. That would bring to Gabe the honor that would be due him on his birthday. Now take that concept and magnify it up to infinity. And that is how we understand that when we find our greatest, deepest joy, and here's the phrase, in him. We likewise give to him the greatest possible glory. God receives maximum glory by devoting the full breadth of his power, bringing all of his strength and his power to bear upon securing our eternal happiness and joy in him. And so Paul is trying to communicate into our minds The concept of the power, some idea of the immensity, the magnitude of the power of God that is at work toward us who believe. So we talked earlier about how he piles these words of power upon each other, the words of power and working. And by putting these five words together, he's just trying to place into our minds just an idea of the size of the power that is at work toward us who who believe, to secure our eternal happiness and joy. But he's not done yet. He wants to illustrate the depth and the magnitude of this power. And so now he says, according to. So this phrase, according to, or accords with, it tells us that there is a correspondence between what he just described and what he's about to describe. What he just described is this power of the magnitude of power working toward us who believe. And now he's going to give an illustration of that. And this illustration corresponds to or parallels with or has a connection with or is an explanation of the power that's at work toward us. So what Paul's about to say is an illustration to give us a measurement, if you will, of the size, the magnitude of the power that is at work toward us who believe, to secure our eternal happiness and joy. And here's the illustration. that he, According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ. So the working in Christ, what God has done in Christ, what Paul's about to talk about, this is an illustration, this is a yardstick, if you will, a measurement of the magnitude of the power of God at work to secure the eternal happiness of the believer. So he said that he worked in Christ, and here's the illustration. The first one is, when he raised him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest, the truest measurement of God's power. The New Testament always puts that forth to us. When the New Testament wants to describe to us the size, the 
the depth, the breadth of the power of God, the truest, the greatest, the most accurate measurement of the power of God is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And there's some other references there for you as well. But that's always given to us as the truest and most accurate measurement of the power of God. Why is that? Well, we can understand something about the resurrection from the dead or what type of power that would take. But God has raised lots of people from the dead. He raised the widow's son, the widow of Zarephath's son. He's, he raised... Well, in the New Testament, he, he, Jesus raised the other widow's son. Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. Paul raised back from the dead the young man that fell out the window. Why is it Jesus' resurrection that's centered upon as the measurement of the power of God? And I think this is the reason. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead would be the perfect illustration of the clash of good and evil. Because there would have been no other thing in the history of humanity that the forces of evil would have wanted more to prevent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It goes without saying that the forces of evil did not want Lazarus to walk out of the tomb. But far beyond that, the forces of evil and darkness would have brought everything that they had to bear upon the tomb of Jesus Christ because that more than anything else was what they did not want to happen. And so that is like this grand picture of evil coming against good, evil with all of its strength and might coming against God. And of course, Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb. So that is given to us as the greatest measurement of the power of God. Now, here's what that means in your life. As believers with fallen hearts, we face the temptation to reflect upon the power of God or to measure, if you will, the power of God in our own thinking according to, and here it is, our circumstances. We tend to look at our circumstances in life, and we wouldn't say this. We wouldn't put these in the, put it in these words, but we tend to look at the circumstances in our life or the events surrounding our life, and we tend to use that as a measurement of the power of God. And you can never measure the power of God by your circumstances. When our circumstances are going badly, when life around us is not going very well, we tend to, even subconsciously, we tend to attach that or allow that to be a reflection upon the power of God. And we must never let circumstances be a measurement of the power of God because circumstances cannot give you an accurate measurement of the power of God. Only the resurrection of Christ is given to us as the true measurement of the greatness, of the immensity, of the magnitude, of the power of God. Because the circumstances in you, we have no idea what God's doing in the circumstances in our life. We have no idea what God is doing. We have no idea what God is working. We have no idea what God is allowing. We have no idea of God's purposes behind the circumstances of our life. And so therefore we must never let the circumstances of our life Teach us about God's power. Because in the circumstances of life, God may be allowing certain things. God may be withholding His power in certain ways. He may be withholding His actions in certain ways in order to accomplish certain things in our hearts. And we have no idea what that is. But we tend 
when God will allow things in our life that are unpleasant, we tend to let that be a reflection upon His power. And we must never do that because the true measurement of the power of God can only be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That moment in time when the greatest forces of evil came to bear upon God Himself and God prevailed. Take maybe this example. This is probably a silly example and I know it won't really get the point across but maybe it'll, it'll help us illustrate this. But what, what if, take uh, our youngest, Molly, what if she comes to me and says, Daddy, show me how strong you are. Throw me as high as you can in the air. Are you strong enough to throw me up to the ceiling, Daddy? And I take her and maybe just throw her up a little bit. And if she says, well, that's, that's how strong my daddy is, that wasn't an accurate reflection. Why? Because I was wise enough to see that's not the best thing for her. So if we say to our father, Father, show us your power in my life. Show us the greatest degree of your power. Oh, he can show us his power. But we must never understand that to be the true measurement of his power. The true measurement of his power is the empty tomb and the empty tomb alone. So he gives this illustration. This is the power working toward the securing of your eternal happiness. It is the power that raised Christ from the dead and then seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So there's a couple things for us to work through there. Seated seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Let's look at heavenly places first. Now we've talked about heavenly places because Paul has used that word before back in chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing in the heavenly places, right? And if you remember way back then, we talked about that that is a really strange grammatical construction. It's strange because Paul uses an adjective without a noun. Adjectives, as we all know, if you can remember back to high school, some of us was just a couple days ago, some of us was a lifetime ago, but if you can remember back, back to grammar classes, adjectives, the function of an adjective is to modify a noun. So adjectives shouldn't occur without a noun because that's their job is to modify a noun. Paul, however, uses an adjective without a noun, and the adjective is heavenly, with no noun accompanying it. But not only does he does it, does he does it, not only does he do it in chapter one, verse three, he does it five times in the letter with the same word, the same adjective, never with a noun. So we went through that earlier. We won't take the time to go through that again, but we recognize that here we are faced again with the same adjective with no, with no noun. The adjective is heavenlies. And so our Bibles will supply the word places because it, we know that an adjective has to have a noun. So for the sentence to really flow for us, a noun is supplied and that noun is places, heavenly places. So Christ, the power of Christ, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Let's take just a a little bit of a look at where else this occurs because this will help us to understand the magnitude of the power that Paul is describing to us now. So it occurs here, it occurred back in chapter 1, verse 3, it occurs here. It occurs in chapter 2, chapter 3, and it occurs in chapter 6. Let's look at chapter 6 first. Chapter 6 and verse 12. Chapter 6 and verse 12 Here that same word is going to occur in a place and in a context that might just surprise us. From verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. There's a phrase that many of us have read a book by Frank Peretti. That's where the title came from, this present darkness. 
over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil, and here it is, in the heavenlies. Same word. So there is this realm of evil demonic forces, evil demonic beings, and Paul describes them here in chapter 6 as existing in the heavenlies. Same word that he uses for where Christ is seated in power. So is Christ seated at the right hand of God in the same place where demonic powers exist? And if he is, that would be problematic. This is why that's helpful to see. Now let's go back to chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1 again. And, and Paul says, He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority. So what Paul wants us to see here is something like realms of heavenlies. And there would be, in Paul's thinking, this realm of heavenly powers that's below the realm, below the heavenlies in which Christ is seated at the power, at the right hand of God. And that's the whole point, is Paul is going to say, there are demonic forces, and they are a reality. There are demonic beings, and they are real. But Christ is seated far above those. He's in another realm. He's seated far above that realm. So now, having that in mind, let's take a look at another place where this occurs in chapter 3 and verse 10. Chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul speaking here of the church in verse 10. He says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies, the heavenly places. So which heavenlies is that? Is that the one where Christ is seated? That wouldn't make sense. Why does Christ in the heavenly realm in which He is seated, why does that heavenly realm need the church to proclaim the truth of God to it? It doesn't. I mean, Jesus prays, Father, let Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Paul again must be speaking there about this other realm in which it is part of the role of the church is to proclaim truth even to the realm of the demonic that is, again, far below the heavenlies in which Christ is seated in power. Now let's look at the final place that Paul uses this in chapter 2. We can just begin from chapter 2, verse 1, just to kind of get the flow of thought. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the power of the air. So we know here's an acknowledgement that there is a certain degree of authority, of power, that the demonic has and, and exercises right now in our world. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and, the, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here Paul says, not only is Christ seated in this realm, 
But there is a sense in which you also, in Christ, are seated in this realm with Him. And remember, this is the realm that is far above the authorities and the powers that are the demonic, that are below the realm in which Christ is seated in power. So this reminds us, once again, that the demonic has no power over the believer. The believer, in Paul's mind, is seated with Christ in authority at the highest realm of power. The demonic has no power over the believer. They have influence, but they hold no power over the believer. And this is one of the places in the Scriptures that the Scriptures tell us that specifically. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.